Pastor Xavier Reese talks about why it's important to walk in God's will. Jesus is not only the door of salvation, but he is also the door for opportunity by which we must walk through if we're going to be used by him. People often say, well, why do you want to go over there to China? Why do you want to go to Cuba? Well, because God's opened the door. Why do you want to go to Guatemala when the war is going on? Well, because God's opened the door. If God doesn't want me there, I don't want to go. But if he opens the door, how can I say no? Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That question from Scripture helps us put our focus on that which really matters. Today, as he takes us back to his study in the book of Revelation, Pastor Xavier talks about that which really matters. Let's listen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. The message is entitled, The Loving Church, Philadelphia. The seven messages, as you know, speak of a local church, a period of church history, a type of congregation that can exist throughout the church age, as well as a type of Christian. The pattern you're very familiar now. The proclamation, the commendation, the condemnation, the exhortation, the application, with a few exceptions, with no condemnation, which Philadelphia is one of them. Once again, the backdrop is very important, the cultural relativity. It was written to a church in that day with certain things, so the message that is given to her fits perfectly, so a good background understanding will help us to do that. Let me read our text for us here, beginning verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, says, he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the keys of David, he who opens door and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The historical information and background for the Church of Philadelphia is important. The city was the ancient Lydia in Asia Minor. The city was located about 25 to 30 miles southeast of Sardis along the Hermes Valley, River Valley. Today it is called Al-Asair. The city was on the borders of Mysia. Lydia, Phrygia, you recall these as you read the book of Acts as Paul is going through his missionary journeys. And the city was found by Attalus, the king of Pergamos, around 189 B.C. Sometimes you'll read a date of 159, 139 because of his brother, but this is the date. Uh, the king uh, named it in honor of his brother, Eumenes, whose loyalty had earned him the name of Philadelphus, which speaks Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The city was founded by in these individuals with the intentions 
that it might be a missionary city to Greek culture and that the language of the Lydian and Phrygians would be totally obliterated. In AD 19, this was fulfilled and they had forgotten their language altogether. What a parallel to us, how we are to forget the language of the world, the way we thought, the way we spoke, and now we're to be completely overcome by this missionary work that God has done in our heart. The city was situated on the edge of a great plain on 650-foot terrace above sea level called Katstak Almani, meaning the burnt land, because of its volcanic plain. And so consequently, it became very fertile, and therefore, it was a center of grape growing. The strategic location of the junction of trade routes leading to Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia had helped to earn it the title of the gateway to the east having great commercial importance. The area was also noted for earthquakes, by the way, and many members even remember Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake and so Philadelphia also in 17 AD. And therefore, many of the inhabitants would often be found running out of their buildings to the open squares because of the earthquake, so they wouldn't, the building wouldn't come down on them. Tiberius helped to rebuild both Sardis and Philadelphia and in gratitude, they named the city, changing its name to Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. But later, Vespasian changed it to Flavia, the emperor's family name. But ultimately, the end, Philadelphia was restored. Now, the church itself, Philadelphia, was the youngest of all seven. The church, without doubt, once again, came from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And today, it's still a Christian town. As I've shared with you, we were there. We went through all seven churches about 15 years ago. Uh, for the majority of them, they're not even there, but Philadelphia is. Uh, the Church of Philadelphia is usually said to cover the period of church history from 1750 to 1950. But I think that Philadelphia goes all to the very end, till the rapture. And perhaps even in a type in, in, in the tribulation when those who will turn to him, there will be 144,000 preaching the gospel. There will be many Gentiles being saved. You'll have the angel preaching the everlasting gospel. So it's a missionary church. The mission does not begin till the kingdom is established. So I think it goes all the way through, in my opinion. Now, Philadelphia is known as the missionary church, which was possible only because of brotherly love on the human side, as we'll see the other one is God opening the doors. The Church of Philadelphia represents those who came out of dead Protestantism, as we've looked at Sardis. Those that depended on God, the Holy Spirit, in contrast to Sardis, the Reformation that ended up in a state church. People who really were looking to God, depending on God. That's what the Philadelphians are. Those who were willing to take the Great Commission and run with it and make themselves available as God directed them. We know that during this period of church history, great revivals occurred all over Europe, the British Isles, Africa, South America, just to mention a few. There are two interesting things that took place during this period in history. First, the printing of the Bible in other languages, and it was taken to other places. And there was a marked increase also in the study of premillennialism, the return of Jesus Christ after 1800. It had been abandoned from the 3rd, 4th century till the 18th, 19th century. This was a historical background to Philadelphia. Now, let's look at the proclamation in verse 7. Notice the identity of the recipient of the letter is the angel of Philadelphia. Like the others, Angelos 
talking about the minister. Angels don't preach from pulpits. The context is important. Ecclesia, the church of the living God, those called out of darkness. Like the other churches, they are saved by grace through faith. They are the church of Jesus Christ. Those called out to hear his voice and obey. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The identity of the writer, notice the words are the words of Jesus, not John. These things says, the chain of command we found in chapter 1, verse 1. The father to his son, his son to his angel, his angel to John, John to us through the churches. It's with a promise in chapter 1, verse 3. To all who read, it's not a sealed book. There's a blessing. It's the only book in the New Testament with a blessing if you read it. Read it. It's got a blessing. It's not sealed. He gives you the table of contents in chapter 1, verse 19. He knows we're dumb. He knows we'll mess it up. He says, you cannot mess this book up. He gives it to us. The identity is once again fitting. The Lord identifies himself as he who is holy. This identification is not found in the first chapter as the others, but it's implied all through it. It is given to us in chapter 6, verse 10, the holiness of Jesus. But the very risen Christ, the glorified Christ in chapter 1, he is the epitome of holiness, risen from the dead. It's plastered all over that first chapter. The description identifies the character of Jesus by one of his attributes that make him distinct from man. The theologians have a word, the otherness of God. He is so distinct from us, so different from us. Stop and think about it. Would you have saved you? No. God saved you. He loved you when you were a sinner, when you were ungodly, when you were his enemy, and so was I. He's different than us, holy. The prophet says in Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the holy one. Here we make a little God, and we put eyes and ears on him and everything else, we make it. What an insult to God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, the eyes of God are so pure that they cannot behold evil or wickedness with condonus or permission. Be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16 tells us. For such a high priest became us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens in Hebrews 7.26. All ascribe the purity of his, of his perfection and holiness, his deity. Our Lord identifies himself also as he who is true, alethinos, which comes from the word Elysia, real or genuine as Messiah, contrast to the false Messiah that's going to come in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said in John 14, 6. On that verse, eternity depends whether you believe he's the way, the truth, and the life, or whether you believe he's one of the ways, one of the truths, and one of the lives. You can't have it both ways. Either he told the truth or he's the biggest liar that's ever existed. One of the two. Truth in the world is very relative, as you know, and very subjective. It changes with the times, depending on the culture, the norms, and the mores, and everything else. You and I live under objective truth. This is truth, absolute truth, nothing but the truth, and we can't waver from it. You understand? Black is black and white is white. And there's enough gray that we don't have to argue about, but let's be sure about the blacks and the whites, okay? And I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about lines, all right? Because in people, there's no color. It makes no difference. You're just a black person who's a rotten sinner. You're just a Mexican who's a rotten sinner, or a white person, or brown, or yellow, or pink. It doesn't make any difference. In hell, there'll be all kinds of races, all kinds of colors. 
But one common denominator is there will be dirty, rotten sinners who have rejected Jesus Christ. You understand? And you and I would be there if it weren't by the grace of God. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come to give us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, that is true God and eternal life. That we know. There's no question about that. But notice also our Lord identifies himself as he who has the keys of David. Keys speak of authority, as you know, power to control. Knowledge as well. Identifying his royal office. He is the ultimate. He is the head. The keys refer to the dual prophecy. You remember Solomon and Christ in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. Solomon would be the descendant on David's throne, but the ultimate, that was short-term. Long-term-wise, it would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Eliakim, in Isaiah, he quotes 22, 20 through 25. Eliakim was given the stewardship of King Hezekiah over his treasury, over the house of David, to replace Shibna, who had been unfaithful. And this is the, the scripture, the keys of David. That one would be an authority. That one would be an, uh, a, a peg, something stable. And you find the prophecy short-term, long-term, but the ultimate one is in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, who is of the line of David, showing his relationship to the human race of the line of Messiah, but also being God and becoming man. And we see it completely through. Christ is the key to unlock the mysteries of life, as you know. If you're a Christian, you have come to know that. You experience it every day when you come to difficulties, when things don't make sense, when things come upon that you have to depend totally on him. He is the one that unlocks life. Before, your marriage was like playing football without a helmet. All of a sudden, God has come into your life, and though you get bruised sometime, you got your helmet on. You know how to play now. And it's a whole different thing. He unlocks things. He turns the light on. He gave to Peter the keys to preach the kingdom and to initiate the kingdom as the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2 because of his confession in Matthew 16, 19. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Peter, your name is Petro, small stone. Upon this Petra, this gigantic truth that I'm the son of the living God, I will build my church. And your name is Petro, and to you I'll give you the keys of the kingdom to preach. Not that Peter is the pope. Completely out of context. Complete perversion of the scripture. Jesus holds the keys of Hades and death. He's told us in chapter 1, verse 18. He destroyed him who had the power of death. He spoiled principalities and powers, Colossians tells us, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He led captivity captive, Ephesians 4 says, and he took him to heaven. <laughs> no one could stop him because he destroyed death and him who had the power of death. And then our Lord identifies himself as he who opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. What an incredible statement. What an incredible promise. Jesus is not only the door of salvation, but he is also the door for opportunity by which we must walk through if we're going to be used by him. Some of you have gone out to deliver Bibles uh, years ago, 15 years ago. We went into China to deliver Bibles and get them across into communist China. We've gone to different places in the world, basically South America, Mexico, Central America that we're focusing on, but now we're expanding to Russia. We just went to Russia. We just uh, visited there and taught. Now Cuba, and we're getting books into Cuba from within. Doors that open up. Amazing. All power is given to him in heaven and earth, he told his disciples in the Great Commission. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Do you believe that? Or do you believe John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do some things? 
That's the problem with the church. We get all set, we get all organized, we get all financially set, and we say, oh, we can do this, we can do that. Let's do this, let's do that. Why don't we just sit down? Why don't we just not depend on all that and let's seek the Lord and say, Lord, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? And then just do it. But let's not go do something and say, okay, Lord, I want you to bless it. Let's say, Lord, what, where do you want us to go? It's very personal. It's not for us to copy other churches. It's not for you to copy another Christian's life. It's for you to go to the Lord, for the church to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have us to do? That's important. And so this was the proclamation to Philadelphia. Now notice the commendation in verse 8 through 10. In verse 8, Jesus knew what they were doing and had done in the past. There is no condemnation to this church. She is on the cutting edge. She is there with her ear tuned to God. The word know as you know, oida, means intellectual knowledge, understanding, perception, infinite penetrating vision here of the Lord. He sees and judges all things perfectly. Their work refers to that which had been going on in the past and that which they were occupied in. He knows everything. And what a joy it brings to God when he sees that you as a Christian or we as a church or anybody else is on target with what he's doing that you're doing just what he's called you to do. You're not a quacking duck and following the organized form of religion and just following a movement and trying to be where all the Christian nets are at. <laughs> Interesting. You are God's workmanship and so am I, Ephesians 2.10. His workmanship, his poem. What is it that I'm communicating to the world, to my family? Notice Jesus had said before them an open door, and no one could shut it. That's important. The city was the gateway to the region of the ancient world, remember? So the door was personally for them. I have set before you. So what are you doing? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Are you involved the way God has told you to be involved? Is your church involved the way God wants them to be involved in doing what they're doing? Or are they following other churches or are they doing whatever the people are saying to do? That's a very critical examination for each of us in our life. This was God's direction. The word see appears five times to the church of Philadelphia. It's translated behold in verse 11. In the old King James, all five references are the word behold. I like that better. Behold, it calls you to look. Not just see, but it's, it's emphatic. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, verse 20. The door cannot be opposed. Now, there's opposition, but it cannot be opposed victoriously. There's always difficulty. There's always warfare. But he opens those doors, and he gives the wisdom. He gives the strength. And so the door was sure. Jesus had opened this door particularly, and no one was able to shut it. And that's the conference that we have. People often say, well, why do you want to go there? Why do you want to go to Bulgaria? Why do you want to go over there to China? Why do you want to go to Cuba? Well, because God's opened the door. Why do you want to go to Guatemala when the war is going on? Well, because God's opened the door. Why do you want to go to San Salvador? When all this well, because God's opened the door. If God doesn't want me there, I don't want to go. But if he opens the door, how can I say no? <laughs> Remember that... Um, Philadelphia was a border town with the mission to, to spread the Greek language, the culture. The city lay on the road of the Imperial Postal Service. The armies of Caesar traveled, caravans traveled. Now the gospel was to go down these roads. <laughs> Open doors. Open doors was a proclamation of Jesus as he said he was the door of the sheepfold. 
we come in and then he sends us out. John 10, 7 through 9. Now the relevance of this open door is seen by Ramsey as he explains the geographical setting. Listen to him. Philadelphia lay at the upper extremity of the Long Valley, which opens back from the sea. A passing Philadelphia, the road along this valley, ascended to the Phrygian land and the great central plateau, the main mass of Asia Minor. The road was the one which led from the harbor of Smyrna to the northeastern part of Asia Minor, and in the east in general, the one rival to the great route connecting Ephesus with the east and the great Asian trade route of medieval times. Philadelphia, therefore, was the keeper of the gate to the plateau, strategic location within time. And that's what opened doors. Let me change it to the vernacular. A window time. <laughs> All of us know what it is to have a window time and to have lost it. And you regret it. Don't miss the window times for the kingdom. They're very, very strategic. William Carey, as you know, we have his university here up north of Pasadena. Uh, went to India, started factories. He learned a dozen languages. Amazing. Feel so ignorant of some of these people that have, God has used and, and their willingness to be uh, students and to do so much. He became professor of Bangali, Sankhurts, and Mathrata, uh, and he sounded the gospel across the length and the breadth of the land. He built the finest college in the country, produced uh, a brilliant translation of the Bible, hired missionaries, he hammered at the card of India. Just to mention one, there's so many. I feel like a spiritual pygmy as I read the life of these men. This was an open door for opportunity to spread the gospel. The mission of heaven, by the way. Every door that God presents is an opportunity for you, for me. And by the way, missions begins the first step outside this, this uh, church. You may not be able to go across the seas. You may not be able to go down South America. But missions begins the first step out of this church. The people you work with, the neighborhood you're in, there's missions. There's plenty of work to be done here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. The reason Jesus opened such doors is given to us. It's threefold in verse 8. First, the church had a little strength depending on him. They were few. The little strength does not mean not enough strength to do the work, but few. The little strength is a number. There were few of them, but they depended on the Holy Spirit to be controlled and to be the source of all that was going on in the church. They are part of the little flock who will receive the kingdom that Jesus said in Luke 12, 32. My little flock. The church is not going to be big. In fact, in Luke 18, 8, it says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The object is no, little, little faith. Numbers are nothing to God. Gideon had 300. He started with thousands, 30,000 or so. He says, now you'll boast. 300, now I can give you the Midianites. God gave us this building with 300 people. We had 500, and he took us down to 300. He says, now I can give you the church. The bank gave us a loan, never could afford the payment. God took care of us, and he paid everything off. He says, now, who's going to boast? I love it. 
I, I can't even figure out God's books, but I love his accounting ways. They're great. As long as we depend on him, you understand? I never want to depend on the people. All I want to do is teach you, pray for you, and pray that you'll be obedient to the Lord. And God will work through 3,000, 300, 30, or 3. It makes no difference, you understand? Pastor Xavier Reese talks about the blessings that accompany a faithful heart. Now you can request a copy of today's encouraging study from the book of Revelation called The Loving Church, Philadelphia. It's available for just $4 on CD. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please, don't forget to include the call letters of this station when you contact us. Well, are you ready for the return of the Lord? Learn more of what's in store when you join Pastor Xavier Reese for the next edition of Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 